So I've been doing FAA exams for close to uh, five years now, but only about two, two and a half as um, a DPE uh, out on the out on the road, if you will. The up the first three years were with the 141 school, and I've been a CFI since uh, 20, uh, see 1997. Uh, so been doing this for a little while, and so been there, done that. Uh, went to college for it, private instrument, commercial, CFI, I, MEI. Uh, and then joined the Air Force uh, after being a flight instructor. I had about a thousand hours when I joined the Air Force. 20 years of the Air Force, three years at the flight school, now two years as a DPE. So uh, that's where I come from. That's my background. Uh, I have about 6,500 hours of flight time and uh, a whole lot of uh, experience, uh, both flying and administratively within the flight training industry. Uh, I'm also a member of uh, the Flight School Association of North America. So I do a lot of work with uh, them as well in, in trying to make the training sphere a better place uh, for all involved. Uh, we got five great topics here. I don't know if we'll be able to hit them all, but we'll, we'll certainly try to. Uh, but before I did that, I just wanted to open up. Uh, are there any specific questions or, uh, Alan, if you wanted to, figure out, is there something specific we want to talk about with regards to the first hour of training or, you know, what, are there any questions out there? I want to make sure we kind of have a interaction and a back and forth. Sure. Yeah. Guys, anything that maybe you would have maybe known when, you know, when you started as CFIs, maybe it's something that you could have helped with your students. I know for us, like at Lyft, TCO is pretty structured, but you know, six to one world. Uh, for those that are 61, or maybe we have the also have the luxury to teach 61, you know, anything that maybe could, you know, help or you think could help, or as you know, Mr. Pete here is more experienced than we are at teaching <laughs> CFI, uh, you know, I guess just pointers on how, you know, what to really instill in the student in the beginning, you know, uh, to set them up for success. Yeah, I don't have any specific questions right now. I'm just interested to hear kind of the topics that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure that questions will come up for me for sure. <laughs> yeah, Pete. So I guess if you just want to okay. give us a rundown of like how you would teach a day sure. one private student or your client. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I don't want to dominate the conversation. So please interrupt me. Uh, absolutely. 100% if I say something. Um, you know, we all love the sound of our own voice, but uh, other people uh, usually get bored at, but after a while. So let's talk about the let's talk about the first hour. So we're talking about post intro flight. OK, that that very first flight lesson. So let's just talk about a few things with that very first flight lesson. And now I'm going to do my best to talk. OK, I'm talking as a CFI. I'm talking as a DPE. I'm giving you my opinion or my technique. And I'm giving you ex what the regulation says. So just make sure that uh, as we go through this and you you're taking notes and you say, be careful when you say, hey, I'm going to quote the I'm going to quote Pete Redden. He's a DPE. And this is what he said. we got to be careful that when we quote, we're quoting from the federal aviation regulations or advisory circulars are the aim. And when we're talking about an opinion, we make sure that we demonstrate that as an opinion and not as as as. FAR or gospel or um, federal aviation uh, 
tried and true doctrine. So we just have to be careful. So I'm going to give you some techniques and some opinion now about the first hour. So post introductory flight, you're in your first hour. I'm going to ask the question to you to think about how much ground training have you done with your student up to this point? I'm not talking about ground school. I'm not talking where they sit in a, in a classroom type of environment. I'm talking about you and your student, your student one-on-one, -on -one, your learner. How much ground have you done with them? One of the things that I see in the training industry right now is we are relying more and more and more on a third-party provider, online provider to provide that ground instruction. And unfortunately, that's a, it's okay, it's not bad, but as we all know, a lecture type environment is not the best way to learn when we have to get to the application level, right? So rote understanding application. So that online learning is kind of rote understanding, but it's the CFI that makes the application part work. So we, now we have to talk about how much time. And, and I would say in our flight school, we probably did five ground lessons of about one to one and a half hours each in those ground lessons. So we had about seven, eight hours of ground before the, the, the learner ever touched the airplane. And then when they get to the airplane, they have some knowledge. They have, remember to, to go, the airplane is what takes us from understanding to application. It's, it's a laboratory. Uh, it's not really the place where you wanna learn rote or uh, understanding in the air at you know 100 knots at, at 2000 feet we want to do rote and understanding at the zero airspeed zero altitude environment um the, the non-dynamic environment so what does that first hour look like well you're going to do your climbs and descents and turns and that's what we're all thinking and radios and how do you do a pre-flight and all that kind of basic stuff that comes to mind right away but i'll ask everybody in the in the in the zoom meeting here one question when i said you know what do we normally teach on the first lesson how many people what was the thought the, the very first thing was trimming the aircraft and that's where i think we lose a lot of opportunity on that first lesson is trimming the aircraft and if remember what's taught first what's learned first is learned best and if we have somebody that's going to start at zero hours and go through cfi double i mei 1500 hours atp to the airlines they better know how to trim an airplane it's just that that's just what it comes down to right it, 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 it's yeah. so basic it's so basic that we almost forget about it so then we can talk about techniques on how to teach someone to trim an airplane so what i see a lot of private pilots doing and some instrument applicants when they i we, in the air force we used to call it chasing chasing the airplane with trim or chasing with trim so the airplane's a little low the student or the learner trims the airplane up and then it climbs steadily at 50 feet a minute and then it's 100 feet high and then they trim it down and then so the whole time you're just kind of on this very lazy roller coaster and it, that's within ACS standards, it's, it meets the ACS standards. But the real way 
that I've found to trim an airplane or to teach trimming an airplane, especially on the ground, is you want to allow the airplane to stabilize pitch, power, airspeed, stabilize in whatever flight regime uh, you're in, allow that control pressure to build up on the yoke. And then once it's stabilized and you're using what I call your big muscles in your forearm to, to hold the yoke, you know, in that pitch attitude, then it's time to trim and you trim until the big muscles relax and the small muscles take over. Because if you use your small muscles to fly the airplane, you're making very uh, fine adjustments. If you're using the big muscles of your arm to fly the airplane, you're making very big adjustments and you'll get fatigued a lot quicker. And so an exercise I like to do in hour one, straight and level, is we climb up, we level off, we get to cruise airspeed, let the student fly a little bit, get a feel for the airplane in a trimmed manner because I trimmed it. And then I will demonstrate and slow the airplane down. And as we slow down, you put one notch of flaps in if it's a retractable gear airplane, put the gear out and stop in each regime as you slow down the slow flight and set the pitch, set the power, let the airplane stabilize, show and demonstrate you using the large muscles of your forearm to hold the airplane there until it stabilizes and then trim and let the student feel that. So let them feel the heaviness of the nose and then let them feel what it feels like when it's trimmed. And then I accelerate at a slow flight, doing the same thing very methodically. And it takes a while. It'll take 10, 15 minutes to do this. And then you have them do it. And then they go through it and they understand that when they are trimming the airplane, they're, they're basically setting a new neutral point for the aircraft flight controls. And when they capture that, and you can get that in the first hour, maybe the second lesson, they kind of really refine it. Once they understand that, you have now set them up for immediate success and being able to put brain bites against thinking about flying and aeronautical decision making and, and the three P's and, and process processing information coming in, as opposed to having to use gray matter and their thought processes to fly the airplane. So you've opened up some of their um, some of their data stream to thinking more about flying, being in front of the airplane, as opposed to being behind the airplane and trying just to maintain altitude, right? So the quicker we can teach the basics of maintaining airspeed, maintaining altitude through the use of proper pitch and power settings and trim, the better off we are. So I just wanted to pause right there and see if that generated any questions from anyone. Anyone online have any questions? So, you know, and you would do that through all the flight regimes on that on that first flight. So climbs, descents, turns, and then build on that through uh, up through solo, right? Final approach. And, and once they capture that, I think you'll find out that your students will actually save time in the airplane. So we can do 80 hours of training in the airplane at $200 an hour, or we could do 40 hours in the airplane at $200 an hour and 40 hours of ground training at $60 an hour. 
So you can see that if you put the effort into the ground training and you look at the airplane as more of a laboratory as opposed to the end all be all of the training, you could actually save money for your student before ever going out to the airplane. And then, you know, in a transition piece, there are a lot of flight schools are getting simulators now. So you could go into the simulator before going to the airplane and teach how to trim the airplane at a lower rate. You're still getting revenue hours in your paycheck. Yeah, I get it. You're not building time towards your 1500 hours, but we're specifically talking about, um, you know, what's, what's best for this, for the student. Um, I'm just looking through the uh, comments here real quick. Uh, Alex. Yep, ab absolutely. So if you're looking at your uh, comments, uh, Alex Alexander made a, a, a great comment there um, in, in trimming off the, um, the control pressures. So we'll yeah, move on. And, and, and if everybody's ready, we'll move on to the, the struggling student. And again, please feel free to interrupt. We can go, you know, we can jump backwards. We can jump forwards. Uh, just let me know. Um, what you, what you'd like to do uh, for the struggling student. So this is this is really where um, if you were to ask me the question, you know, Pete, what's the pinnacle? What's the apex of an aviation career? Uh, I am not going to say DPE. I'm not going to say military pilot, and I'm not going to say airline captain. I'm going to say flight instructor because if you as a flight instructor are turning around and giving back to the community and you are teaching the next generation, if you will, of pilots, that's a pretty hefty responsibility. And I would say even more so than an airline captain who carries 150 passengers because you're training that next five or six uh, students or more, and all of them are gonna carry 150 passengers each and they're going to go on and train five or six and so on and so on. So, you know, when you're doing that, just remember, there's a guy out here who's kind of done everything, who's saying the pinnacle of the aviation trade, the aviation industry is being an instructor. And, and I'm very, very adamant about that when I when I discuss it. So now we're talking about the, the key to being an instructor, and this is called root cause analysis. And we did a lot of this in the military and it's why the military training process is as efficient as it is we take a 21 year old college graduate zero flight time sometimes zero knowledge about flying airplanes and in 52 weeks they're a fighter pilot and they've flown uh, a 6,000 pound uh, high performance single engine aerobatic turboprop uh, they solo that usually in 10 to 15 hours, and then they graduate out of a uh, two-engine uh, fighter jet trainer, the T-38. So the T-6 Texan II and then the T-38, or they go up to over to the uh, T-1, which is a beach jet. So in 52 weeks, they get about 100 hours of training, and they are United States Air Force pilots, and they are incredibly effective and they go off to their training to the, in their specific weapon systems. So root cause analysis is, is, a, is a big thing. And root cause analysis basically says, this is just a fancy word that says, what basic concept is the student missing or struggling with 
across all the symptoms that they're displaying, right? So we're not going to treat the, the symptoms of the cold. We're going to train the, we're going to, we're going to solve the cold. We're going to, we're going to go in there and figure out what the virus is and we're going to kill the virus. So let's say, uh, you know, you have a student that is, um, struggling with doing steep turns and they're also let's say it's a commercial pilot student they're struggling with steep turns they're struggling with um, uh, steep spirals they're struggling with emergency descent and they're just not having a good go of it they're either fat they're they're, they're fast um they're unable to control their airspeed very well uh they are having difficulty, you know, setting the proper power setting. Uh, they, they, they're not staying where you want them or where your uh, school wants to, them to stay within, within the tolerance of operating your aircraft and your SOPs. So we have to look at those three maneuvers and say, what do those three maneuvers have in common? So I'll put that out there. I, I'm going to, I'm going to force some interaction. What, what do you steep turns? steep spirals and emergency descent all have in common what what are those three things that they have in common somebody think about it real quick here in person they said high bank angle yeah high bank angles right so now we start talking about high bank angles so now is the root cause they don't understand how to control bank maybe but probably not everybody kind of understands how to control bank but the um the next uh yeah, there you go. So Alexander, uh, yeah, Alexander, again, load factor. There's, there's something that maybe they don't understand. So now you're like, well, they all have to do with load factor. And when you start talking about load factor, you start talking about, okay, angle of attack and lift. And as I change my angle of attack, I'm going to change my load factor. But I'm also going to change my drag, which means that's going to affect my airspeed if I don't understand how it affects my airspeed. And if your student is too fast, maybe they, they're not putting enough load factor on the aircraft to control the airspeed versus, um, versus uh, if they're too slow, maybe they're putting too much load factor. So in one case, you're overspeeding the airplane because you're not putting enough load factor on. And then the second case, you're underspeeding the airplane because you're putting too much load factor on and, and too much lift, too much angle of attack. So now you can have that discussion on load factor. And now you've, you've identified a potential root cause for poor performance. And that discussion happens on the ground before you go back in the airplane again. And the light bulb goes on in the student's brain that goes, okay, once I have my power set, once I have my known pitch set, now I'm going to use um, load factor to control my airspeed. So we're not saying pitch is controlling airspeed. We're saying load factor. So we're looking for that, that stable platform, stable load factor of 1.5, 1.7 Gs up to two uh, in a turn. And then you can flip that around and go, um, you know, uh, Jeffrey was saying the, the loss of the vertical component of lift. So when you start talking about load factor, you start talking about lift. And so you start hitting on these aerodynamic principles that don't, instead of focusing on each individual maneuver, 
where you might have to teach the same thing three times, you root cause analysis analysis to one thing, teach that one thing, and then go back up and see if you kill three birds with one stone. So that's what we talk about root cause analysis. So we have to be thinking about that stuff uh, as flight instructors, um, as we instruct and we're taking those notes. When I go through uh, an exam, one of the things that we have to do as examiners is we have to look for trends. So is someone, did someone mess up four uh, maneuvers? Did they do those four maneuvers incorrectly? Or were those four maneuvers done incorrectly because they have a lack of understanding on the basic aircraft, um, basic aircraft control? So we have to we have to look for that because you may have three or four maneuvers that are within standards, but they're demonstrating a lack of knowledge that could cause a disapproval. Because there's a there's a there's a even though they're they're doing it correctly, they may not understand that they're, they're living on the ragged edge of destruction. So we look for trends as well. Um, very rarely do those lead to a disapproval. They usually lead to a debrief item uh, after the exam is over. But if they're egregious enough and across the entire spectrum of the exam, then we have to scratch our head and go, okay, maybe this is not, there's a lack of knowledge. And then you go to the ACS and it says, okay, here's you know, one third of the ACS is based on knowledge. Really, the whole thing is based on knowledge, but grading criteria wise, one third of it is based on knowledge. And OK, there's a lack of knowledge here. So that can that could lead to a disapproval. But remember, it's not a, a one and done kind of thing. We're talking about over the entire course of the exam. There's a demonstrated lack of knowledge in a specific. Point throughout each maneuver in the exam. So, you know, just think about it. If someone doesn't understand the concept of lift, how could they be a pilot? Right. That's that's not a that's not a good concept to have left out or or, gra or not grasped. If you're going for a job interview as a flight instructor or as a pilot, um, one of my favorite questions to ask to a flight instructor as I hire them on board is what is what is lift? Teach me lift. And those that couldn't didn't get a job offer and those that could got a job offer because that's a basic fundamental. Uh, so there's the, the struggling student. The other thing I'll talk about with struggling students in training specifically, we get into, I see a lot of stuff online. Oh yeah. You know, it took me, you know, 150 landings and 25 hours to solo. And I think that's an unfortunate measure, uh, that we use in the training community. We shouldn't worry about how many hours or how many langs it took someone to solo because according to the FAA, according to our driving documents, our source documents in part 61, you don't, there's no measure in that, in that curriculum, if you will, on how quickly you solo. And I'm someone who believes that it's okay to go through all your pre-solo training, it's okay to go through your cross-country training and then solo and then do your three or four or five hours of top off before your exam and then go take your exam. Because I would rather have a student out soloing who knows how to navigate and knows how to divert than someone who just knows how to fly in a traffic pattern. 
right? You, you, it's a it's a unique thing that um, I guess we falsely put on ourselves to go. You got to you got to solo in ten hours, and um, you have to do three takeoffs and landings on your first solo. There's nothing in any of the guidance that says that has to happen. That's all stuff that the industry forces on us as, or, or not the industry, but we force on ourselves as a community. So that's kind of, that's kind of, you know, one of those things that we have to be careful of. Um, don't let your students focus on that. And then the only reason I say that too, is because when you have a student or a learner who is struggling with learning how to land, we get in what I call the hamster wheel and we spend hour after hour after hour after hour after hour in the traffic pattern and that just breeds frustration it breeds the it breeds um the enforcement of bad habit patterns and sometimes the best thing to do is you know what we're not going to do this pre-solo stuff we're going to move on to doing some cross countries we're going to go somewhere we're going to have a hamburger we're going to learn something new and we're going to take the pressure off of that learning how to land and the traffic pattern and all stuff and now you put the student in a different environment where they can pull their training into from that pre-solo, they can bring it into the cross country. And then maybe something clicks along, you remove the pressure off of landings. And then all of a sudden they're focused on navigating and radios and all that stuff. And all of a sudden they land the airplane and they didn't even know that they did it by themselves. And so now you have a applicant who's ready to go, not just solo, but solo cross country. And remember, we five hours has to be solo cross country if you're in part 61. Um, but uh, it, there's nothing that says it can't all be cross country uh, it, in regards to the, the solo. So um, just make sure that you keep an open mind and, and think of different ways to keep your different students. They're all different personalities. They're all dif different learning types uh, interested in the flying part of that. Um, so that's the uh, the struggling student, if you will. Yeah, Pete, to add on to onto that, I I agree with you 100%. I think, you know, as CFIs, we have a big, big role in the industry, right? We're, like you said, we're training the next generation of pilots that, you know, the mindset I put myself in is, hey, we're literally training a person to transport our families or us one day as we're sitting in the back seat, you know, commuting to our jobs, our career, whatever, you know, wherever we end up. And it's certainly a big, big factor for sure. You know, uh, Lyft, right? You'd be surprised. Sometimes I ask on state checks here at Lyft and they don't understand what Lyft is. So primacy is big, right? So kind of like what Pete was saying is, you know, taking, you know, eight, 10 hours beforehand. So the student understands those levels and then go in the airplane that certainly would help them save money in the long run. And I agree with Pete, like, I know there's been a like a big, oh yeah, like I saw that 10 hours or I saw that 20, you know, it's like, well, we shouldn't have that mindset. And I agree with him on that. Like we should uh, <clears throat> be able to, you know, like, all right, hey, this student could, like Pete said, you know, go out and have them enjoy the moment and then just come back and maybe it'll click. Right, so uh, there's a good question here um, about uh, the struggling student and, and the realm of 141. And really the, 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 the crux of that is the struggling student in the formality and the structure of part 141. 
Um, and I, and I think that's really the root of it. So in the industry, in the community, we believe that part 141 and part 61 are different when it comes to how you train. And that's fundamentally untrue. The, the training is the same. The requirements for the exam are the same. The manner in which we do it is different. In a 141 environment, when someone signs on, and I think we forget that when we sign on for a 141 training program, that is the proverbial accelerated program. And we see this all over the internet uh, and Facebook and, and every advertisement. You know, we have an accelerated private pilot training course. And the 141 training course from its history, from its establishment, is pretty much the accelerated course. It has reduced training requirements by five hours in in most of the in most of the um in most of the the, the syllabi and you could don't quote me on this because i'm i'm going i'm reaching back pretty far here you can generate a commercial pilot well under 250 hours from the part 61 uh process and so if you can generate that private or that commercial pilot well under 250 hours, well, now you can generate a flight instructor under 250 hours and a CFII and an MEI under 250 hours. Because once you have that commercial pilot certificate, it opts you for all the, the flight instructor ratings. So we have to ask ourselves, did we ignorantly sign up for part 141, not understanding the structure and the demands of the training program because we know in part 61 it's kind of like all right you you want to do stalls today we'll go do stalls today you want to do you want to talk about lift we'll talk about lift and you have requirements but folks don't have the structure or they don't believe the structure is part of the part 61 training program but it, it really is as flight instructors as professional flight instructors you know we should have lesson plans we should have an, a, a a, a training course outline, which is what we call the syllabus in part 141. You should have a syllabus for your part 61 students. And when at my flight school, when you came in as a, in a student, whether you were part 141 or 61, you executed the same syllabus. The only difference was you had to do an additional five hours of solo if you were a part 61 student. You got the same training. It just cost you five more hours of solo time. So what happens when a student starts struggling? Well, now we have an additional pressure of time. Is the student struggling in the 141 program because of the time element, because they're not meeting their gates? And if that's true, um, if they're not meeting their gates for their stage checks, then we have to ask the question, is the part 141 training program the best training program for this individual learner, for this client, for this customer. And it might be worthwhile to shift them to part 61. And uh, as Jeffrey said, it gives you more flexibility, right? So they're in 141, they're in a reduced time training environment already. 
they're in a structured environment that's going to reduce the calendar time. But if they, if their personality, if, if they don't, if the gears don't mesh, we probably shouldn't force that student through that 141 program. It might be a good opportunity to transition them into a 61, as Jeffrey says, and, and allow the flexibility uh, to train to that specific need. Now, obviously, we all know we can't go bouncing back and forth between the two, uh, but there, there's, an, there's an opportunity there to keep the applicant in training, move them over to 61. They're still following the same course, but now they're going to get, maybe they get two ground lessons on a topic instead of one. Maybe they get two flights or three flights additional instead of one. And, and so there's, we have to learn how to manipulate that a little bit in a positive way to cater to the applicant to, or I say applicant, cause I'm an examiner cater to the learner. So th that's, that's something that we have to look at as a flight training industry for sure. Uh, there were times and it's unfortunate and it's, it's, it's not great at all. Where as a uh, chief instructor at a 141 school, I had to call in my clientele or a, a client and go, you know, we, we tried the 141 and it's not working. We moved you to 61 to kind of cater and, and give you some very structured one-on-one -on -one flight training for your specific deficiencies. And that's not working. And before you spend a hundred thousand dollars or more on your flight training, we're going to have the real conversation that maybe this isn't for you. And we have that conversation at the private pilot level. So, because the last thing you want to do, you have a responsibility as a flight instructor to not only teach well and generate, you know, safe, efficient pilot or safe, competent pilots, but you also have a duty to your client to, to save them from wasting hundreds of thousands of dollars of money in something that they may not accomplish in the time that they want to accomplish. Now, if that client said to me, hey, I'm made of money and I want to be here. This is what I want to do. It's my dream. And there we've had the real conversation and we said, you know, this is um, this is something that you it's going to take a lot of money to get you to this point. And they understand that. OK, let's keep training. So we're not saying no, we're kicking you out. But what we are saying is this is going to cost a lot more than you thought. And, and here's why. Um, it's, uh, the, it's just interesting, right? So it, it, it's an interesting uh, dichotomy there that you have to take care of your clients, both in helping them accomplish their goals and dreams, but you also have to kind of protect them financially a little bit um, with regards to the, the part 61 and the part 141. So we just, we just have to be careful when we start talking about the accelerated courses, that's great. Um, but acceleration also, you know, uh, force equals mass times acceleration. Uh, if you accelerate something too much, you're going to build up too much force against it. And, and when it hits a wall, uh, instead of being, you know, maybe slightly injured, it could be uh, a, a very significant catastrophe. Um, when it comes to the training realm, you put all this money into it, you accelerate so fast, and then you get to the end of it, 
and you're not ready to take a check ride and you put you now you've spent all this money in a very short amount of time and and you're not ready and now you got to do some top off training so we, it, it's a very fine balance it's a very fine balance uh for that but in the 141 i think the bottom line of the 141 is don't be afraid to transition somebody out of a 141 program into the 61 rule set to help uh, to help their specific deficiencies if they're not keeping up with the structure and timeline of the 141 school. So every 141 school should have a 61 outlet, if you will, um, and a healthy 61 outlet uh, that they're still receiving the same training. It's just noted it's going to be over a little bit longer period of time uh, to, to help build up the deficiencies. And you can get the private pilot certificate and then trans back, transition back into part 141 for instrument, right? So you have that opportunity to come back into the 141 realm once the current 61 uh, training is finished. So there are some transition points back and forth that you can make, just not as easily uh, once you transition out of 141. Uh, we'll move on to um, deficiencies. So um, just looking at a question here real quick for some reason. There we go. Um, yeah. So yeah, good, good comment in the comment section there uh, from Jeffrey. The, um, so let's talk about deficiencies. I would say as an examiner, one of the biggest deficiencies that I see across the board, doesn't matter whether I'm giving exams in Arizona, Tennessee, Alabama, um, Illinois, doesn't, it doesn't matter, um, is the lack of pilot in command authority, the lack of aeronautical decision-making that comes from understanding the responsibilities of pilot in command. We, as a community of instructors, we have to, we go through these phases of when a student is brand new or a learner is brand new, we're constantly telling them what to do, right? We're just telling and they're doing. And then eventually we move into a, uh, a realm. There's four stages and I'm going to really paraphrase this, but we're, we're just telling them what to do. And then you go into the second stage and you start dialing back, telling them what to do so that they can make a few mistakes and kind of learn to correct. Or we start to evaluate, we're not really instructing it, we're evaluating to see where the mistakes are, where, where the holes in the Swiss cheese are that we have to fill. And then we go to a third stage where now we truly are instructing because we are instructing deficiencies. We're instructing some root cause analysis, principle-based solutions so we're not treating the symptoms anymore, which is what we're treating in stage one. We're treating the, the actual cause. And then we go to stage four, which is really hard to get to. Um, there's a big leap between stage three and four where we as the instructors are now stepping back from a instructing standpoint, instructional standpoint, and letting the learner execute on their own without any input from us. And, and that's when we're kind of leaning back and we're just taking notes for the debrief after the flight. 
So if you've never allowed a student to fly an entire flight prior to their exam, where you just sit back and take notes and you ensure that the flight is safe and doesn't violate any rules or regulations and just let them kind of move through it themselves. Um, I would, I would encourage you to try that and go, here is what the ACS says you need to do on your check ride. I want you to come up with the plan. I want you to tell me how we're going to execute all these maneuvers and where we're going to go on our divert and where we're going to do our three or four landings. And you're going to, you're going to, you're going to choose all of this and you're going to put it together. And then you have them come in, you review their plan with you, and then you go up and fly the, their plan for their potential exam. And this is before you ever contact the examiner. And now you have basically empowered them to not only plan as the pilot in command, but to fly as the pilot in command. And now you have basically given them a entire lesson to exercise aeronautical decision-making before and during the lesson. And, and that is huge. There's one thing that, uh, when a, when a applicant comes in, you know, as an examiner, you know, I don't want to say it's, it impresses you or, uh, it puts you in a positive, it, it, the exam is the exam and it's equal for everybody. But as an examiner, when somebody walks into, into the room and we begin the, the ground portion of the evaluation as a flight instructor, right? Because you know, deep down at my core, I'm still a flight instructor, even though I'm not allowed to instruct as an examiner on the exam, all that stuff. But down at my core, I'm still a flight instructor. And when somebody lays down a plan and they go, hey, I've read the ACS. I've talked to my flight instructor. I know what's required of me. And here's how I think we're going to do it. Whoa, you are a pilot in command. So don't just limit the planning to the scenario that the examiner gives to you. You know, hey, we're going to do this scenario. We're going to fly from A to B. And then I figured here we'll do steep turns and here we'll do stalls and slow flight. And over here, you know, maybe at this airport, you know, we'll do a landing and then we'll come back here to this, the, the main airport that we took off from and we'll do two landings here and, and, and build as the pilot in command that, that scenario so that when you walk in, at least you have something to deviate from as opposed to having almost absolutely nothing. Um, it may or may not flow into the DPE scenario, but at least you've thought through it. You've thought through the potential threats and mitigated to risk uh, through that whole, um, that whole flight. And the same thing with the ground. The ground portion is comes right out of the ACS. So you could, you can go into the ground portion and you can look at, okay, here is the, here's what I have to be ready to answer. Well, why not just come in and be ready to answer it in regards to your scenario? Okay, we're going to be flying at night. Let's not just regurgitate 91.205, but let's say, hey, here are the four things I'm going to check specifically at night. And if any one of these four things is inoperative, we can't fly. But then I have to go to part 43 to see that, you know, is it part of uh, preventative maintenance? And if it is, now I have to ask the question, 
do I own the airplane or do I not own the airplane? Does the operator own the airplane? You know, where do I fall in that matrix? And can I replace or fix whatever's broken so I can fly at night? If you came in and you answered that question that completely, the ground portions of the exam would go from an hour and a half, two hours long to about 45 minutes because now the DPE doesn't have to sit there and, and pick at your knowledge. You've just given them the A to Z on that scenario and it's time to go to the next question. And oh, by the way, you've answered multiple other pieces of the ACS in that one answer. So now the examiner can start, I don't wanna say skip sections, but can skip part of sections, parts of tasks, because you've already provided and demonstrated an understanding and an application of the knowledge from that task. So now the exams start going a lot quicker. And that's, I think, what we mean by prepared as an examiner. So then we talk about the, the ADM and the, the pilot and command aspect of it. Um, we, I think as examiners as a whole, that's what the, what we're really looking for. Can this person pilot an aircraft safely, proficiently, and make good judgments that will create a logical positive outcome at the end of the scenario. And when we say scenario, I mean both scenario, uh, you know, made up simulated scenario for the exam, but also the scenarios that life and the dynamic environment of aviation are gonna throw at you while you're flying. So, you know, one of the things that I have to brief sometimes is, uh, hey, when you pick your divert field, as long as it's a viable divert field, great, but it may not be the divert field that I need you to go to for the scenario. So, you know, maybe the flight plan goes from Memphis to Nashville, and then I throw some uh, scenario in there that requires a divert. And the student does their math and they say, hey, we got enough fuel, we can go to Chicago and, and avoid this, this altogether. Okay, well, I don't wanna go to Chicago on the exam, right? We're, we're trying we're, we're trying to minimize the pain while maximizing the efficiency of of the time we have together so okay great you 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 chose a viable solution you made your turn you did all your calculations and, and you are now navigating to chicago o'hare okay well let's go to this place so that we can do a, a landing here and you know i don't want to go all the way to chicago so we have to make sure that we moderate you know just because you picked an airfield that we didn't think of doesn't mean that it's wrong but we still have to steer the scenario um to keep it within a, a, a reasonable time limit um although there is no time limit on an exam um but a reasonable time limit to assess your your skills um again i don't think anybody wants to fly from memphis to chicago with a dpe on board that would be a very long check ride <laughs> yes, you would. For both parties involved. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so ADM, I, I really, I really can't, man, I could, I could talk for hours on pilot and command authority and ADM. Encourage your learners, encourage your clients to build a plan for every ground lesson and every flight lesson. And they're going to come in and say, here is what I learned. 
And then you're going to see that you're, you're now, your efficiency in your lessons is going to increase and they're going to learn more per lesson than if you just said, Hey, tomorrow we're going to talk about stalls. And it's, it's a fine, it's a fine thing, but it makes a world of difference. When I tell my clients that I teach, Hey, tomorrow when we meet at, you know, sometimes I meet at Starbucks, not, not during the exam, but instructional, we meet at Starbucks and I'll go, okay, tomorrow at Starbucks, you are going to tell me about stalls, Mr. Private Pilot, Mr. Commercial Pilot. You are going to tell me about departure procedures, Mr. Instrument Pilot. Um, and it's a difference because now the onus is on them to dig in and they dig in and they learn as much as they can, but they come with a whole list of questions. And now you can now now you've prepared their mind. Their mind is fertile for learning and for grasping knowledge. Any any feedback on that? Any uh, anything that you guys see as deficiencies uh, that that I didn't hit on there? I think that it's just good perspective. You mentioned like them kind of coming up with a plan sometime because I can remember as a student sometimes. Like even transitioning to instructor during CFI training, it's like, okay, at what point do I become the instructor and not the student anymore? And that whole PIC authority, it's kind of getting your your mindset before the flight that I am piloting command for this flight. And so, um, yeah, I think that's a useful tip that I really intend to use. Um, I've got a student that I'm working through instrument training on. And so just having her go through and say, okay, we've got to do an RNAV approach, a VOR approach today. and uh, let her kind of like build the lesson, obviously within our 141 standards, but mm -hmm. a tip that I intend to use. Thank you for that. Yeah, and and so here here's a a real quick add on to that, and I and I forget to answer. I forgot to put this in there, and I have to be very careful as an examiner with this, not just a flight instructor. When they build, when they walk in, and they have that, hey, I I worked all night on this. The last thing you want to do is change it on them because now that wrecks it, right? They'll never do it again because they're going to say, Hey, I, I did all this work. And then you said, we're not, you're not going to follow my plan. So when they do that, make sure that you allow them to follow their plan. And now you build that, that safe environment for them to learn where they're not going to bust airspace. They're not going to fly into a tower. They're not going to miss a clearance. Right. And, sure. and, and just take that step back and let them execute their plan because you may be surprised as well. I've been surprised a few times the student or the learner comes in and says, here's my plan. And I'm like, well, that's a pretty interesting plan. I would do none of that. <laughs> but I let them do it and it works, right? And, and just remember, beauty's in the eye of, a, of the beholder. I'm a military guy. I'm very checklist oriented, very process oriented, very procedurally oriented. But somebody else may be non-military and a little bit more artistic and what looks beautiful to them may be ugly to the very disciplined former military guy, but it still works. And as long as it still works and it falls within the ACS, you can't say it's wrong. Sure. So chime in, Pete, thanks so much for that. Cause that's kind of where I've been. Um, that transition from being an student to instructor, I always tend to do too much for my students and like, hey, we're going to plan this and do this and explain. I go through why I'm doing all my stuff, but 
I feel like some of them, and I've had success with that, and then others has been the point opposite to where, like, then they get to, hey, we got to take the, you know, take the seatbelt off and you're full force and make these decisions, and they're completely lost in the dark and or just trying to copy what I've done before. So thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great, great discussion. Um, we were talking about, uh, someone talked about situational awareness. Situational awareness uh, in the comments section is, man, that's the hardest thing to teach. Because you don't realize you lost situational awareness until you get it back. Yep. Yeah. Right. And yeah. then in, until, until that moment happens, you don't understand how scary loss of situational awareness is. So it, you can... I, I wish there was a turnkey solution to this, but but situational awareness is something very difficult to develop. And in the Air Force, in pilot training, the way we develop situational awareness, um, the primary way is by flying formation. Because I have to be situationally aware of another airplane that's anywhere between three feet and a thousand feet from my airplane at all times. Even though I may not see them, I need to know where they are around my airplane. And you do that when you can't see the airplane, you're doing that by radio calls, right? Um, or maybe you have a, a, a display that displays where the position of that airplane is outside of your peripheral vision. So now we transfer that to, um, I'm kind of having a, a, a streaming moment of conscience here. I'm kind of putting it together as I talk about it. Now we bring that to general aviation and how do you teach situational awareness? Well, you can teach situational awareness by just listening to the radios. Okay, you've entered the traffic pattern. You're on downwind. Look over and ask your student, how many, how many, how many airplanes are in the pattern right now? Because they should have been listening to the radio 10 miles out. And if they go, well, there's no other airplanes in the pattern and there's three other airplanes in the pattern, there's a lack of situational awareness. And now you've created that you don't have situational awareness and now you do. And you've created that scary moment in between. And they're going to go, I better listen to the radios more. Right. Okay. Yep. Um, and, and, and so we, we look for those opportunities to capitalize on situational awareness, but it's really hard to teach situational awareness right it, it, it you have to listen and and so there are some flight schools and, and i'm not picking on flight schools don't i don't want don't want anybody to think i'm going negative but i see a lot of flight schools who are very airline oriented and they want to brief while there's people talking on the radio well if you're not listening to the radio because you're briefing how are you building your situational awareness Right. So it's one of those things where, hey, somebody's talking on the radio. I need to stop my briefing. I need to listen on the radio. OK, that's one airplane in the pattern. OK, go back to briefing. Oh, the radio is going again. OK, that's two airplanes in the pattern. Briefing. Oh, there's three. You know what? Maybe I don't want to go to this airport. Maybe I want to brief a different airport. So there's your opportunity to build uh, situational awareness. I hope I hope that kind of doesn't answer it, but it gives you a, an example of, of how you can build that. No, that's great, Pete. I agree with that 100%. You know, sometimes uh, being a state checker here as well, it's like, you know, brand new private 
stage one check. It's like you go and, you know, make sure they're ready to solo, essentially stalls, slow flight, pattern work, emergency stuff. And it'd be surprising, like, how much they're so focused on, like, doing their stuff and they're so in the moment of being evaluated that they don't know what's going on in the traffic pattern. Next thing you know is they're doing silly mistakes of, Oh snap! I said I'm entering 45 to downwind for this runway, but I'm on the other side. Now they enter the downwind mm-hmm. for the other runway, and then they're like, "Oh yeah, I messed up." So I, I think it's you know kind of like you're saying, just building that and be like, "All right, like bring them to reality," you know, and be like, "Hey, you were you lost situational awareness. How can you fix that in future flights?" You know, and I think right. that'll eventually, like you said, kind of scare them a little bit and hopefully boost that situational awareness. Um, and I'm sure you notice this on, uh, as a DP, you know, sometimes you have, uh, uh, applicants that all they do is stare inside the aircraft when they should be looking outside. And <clears throat> I think that's the biggest thing too, how you can easily, uh, even though you have all the technology, you know, if you have two TVs, essentially two screens in front of you, you can still lose situational awareness if you don't know how to use it properly when you should be looking outside. Yeah, it, it, exactly. And over-reliance on technology, right? And, you know, if you ask Pete Red, in my opinion, we as a community, an aviation community, we are beginning, we believe that more technology will lead to more situational awareness. And that's not always true because it's a distraction, especially when it's not working or we can't program it correctly. We just have to go back to basics, look outside the airplane, listen on the radio, just like we've been doing it since 1903, and know who's around us, right? Um, yeah. You know, it, we forget that airplanes flew in 1903. We forget that gliders flew prior to 1903. They didn't have radios. They didn't have air traffic controllers. Yes, I get it. Airspace is complex. There's more, you know however many hundreds of thousands of takeoffs and landings a day in the United States, let alone around the world. I understand that. But in your scenario, in your one airplane scenario going into one airport that may have a couple of other airplanes going into it, you know, with the exception of class B, you're probably, you probably can build your situational awareness by just looking outside and listening on the radio. You don't need all the whiz bang technology. Um, that's good, but it's it, it's not um, not uh, not required. Um, and then, so we're. I just see another note here about um, uh, wind, applying wind corrections on approaches, and somebody also says crosswind landings, right? Um, so, so that's one. And I go back to the planning. So remember, you're talking to a guy who who did 20 years in the military and we, we would come in the day prior. If we were going to do a local training flight, we would come in the day prior and we would flight plan for eight hours for a four hour flight. Wow. Okay. So for a local training flight, we planned for eight hours the day prior you planned how many takeoffs and landings you were going to do, what approaches you were going to do, how you were going to, because we did what we called seat swaps. So you're flying in KC-10, you're flying in a C-17, big, big uh, flight deck, lots of seats, people, you know, you might have eight people on that training flight that need different training. 
Um, so how are we going to move the chess pieces to make sure that there are always the proper two pilots in the in the seats flying the airplane for whatever training event that they needed to capture in that four hours? So it, it's a lot of planning. And I plan to the nth degree. If I'm going to ferry an airplane from point A to point B, I'm planning that whether it's an hour flight or whether it's a two hour flight, I'm planning that probably three or four days in advance. Not the weather, not the flight plan, but looking at the route of flight, looking at, hey, am I gonna have to spend an overnight? Am I gonna have to get a rent a car? Um, you know, where is the, if I'm bringing an airplane in for maintenance, where's the maintenance hangar? What's the phone number, right? That all comes from that military flight planning. And, and I get real specific down to the point where I want to know what parking spot I'm going to park that airplane on in front of the hangar, you know, and if, and if they don't have parking spots, I'm saying, Hey, I want you to put an orange cone out where you want me to park the airplane because the last thing you want to do is show up on the ramp, shut down and then, Hey, you got to start that big airplane up again. You got to move it over here. And it's like, why didn't you just tell me in the beginning? Right. So you take that on as the pilot in command and you're building that situational awareness. And then the weather, you know, that's the night before and the morning of you, you layer the weather on and go, okay, how does that affect this plan? And, um, you know, I'm thinking I want to get, I want to fly this approach to this runway exit at this taxiway because it's the shortest route to that orange cone on the ramp um and some people giggle some of you guys that are not on the camera you might be giggling right now and go wow that, that's that's like really really ridiculous but you have to remember time is fuel fuels money and when you're a commercial a professional commercial pilot your job is to operate as safe as possible but also as economically as possible without compromising safety so it, those are those little things. So now we talk about the planning aspect of it, and we talk about the, the crosswind components or correcting for wind on an instrument approach. We have boiled planning down to a flight log, and that's really not planning. That's part of the planning. We have to say, how, how does this planning affect my flight? And if we can start getting our learners to say, okay, on this flight, when I go to take off, because I did all this planning, I know the, I know the crosswinds are going to be coming from the left. Before they ever walk out the door, they've programmed their mind. They know they're going to have left aileron in. Hey, when I get to my destination, I know the winds are going to be out of the east and I'm flying to the south. I'm going to have my nose is going to be to the left to maintain course going into the runway. And then eventually I'm going to have to rudder that nose over Eventually, I'm going to have to put aileron in to land the airplane. And it sounds so simple. But if you were to ask your uh, learner, your client, uh, before you step out to the airplane, before you walk outside, okay, tell me about how the winds are going to affect us on takeoff and landing. I would say a good percentage are going to look at you and go, well, I haven't gone outside yet. I haven't listened to ATIS. I haven't seen the windsock yet. Yeah, but you you just looked at all the weather reports for your flight log. So how how are you not 
applying that knowledge to your takeoffs and landings and instrument approaches already. Here's a, a, another one that I see all the time, and it's only because of my opportunity in the Air Force that I kind of learned this. When you have a crosswind and you're doing a normal traffic pattern, most general aviation pilots don't understand that if you have a crosswind on landing, you're either going to have a tailwind or a headwind on base, which means your ground speed on base is going to be the highest ground speed, where when we teach ground reference maneuvers, we always teach our highest ground speed is on downwind. So there's some negative transfer there, and you wonder why you have a student or a client or a learner that is just rock solid on their patterns. And then all of a sudden, one day, they're just overshoot, overshoot, overshoot. They just can't stop overshooting. It's because you have a crosswind that's giving you a tailwind on base, and they've never had a tailwind on base, and they don't realize that either you need to fly the pattern slightly wider to maintain the same bank angle to final, or you may have to steepen the bank angle some to make that turn to final because your ground speed is higher than normal, right? So we take those ground, those principles that we learned in the ground reference maneuvers, and we have to apply them to the pattern, specifically when you have a tailwind on base. Um, in the Air Force, we adjust the width of our pattern. So our downwind, when we have a tailwind on base, your downwind is going to be flowing wider than normal so that you can maintain the same bank angle that you were planning on for a standard pattern. Um, because we all know is the bank angle increases on that base to final turn, it's more and more imperative that the coordination is correct to avoid the, the, the accelerated or turning stall in that scenario. Um, so, you know, you can, you can change the width of the pattern by an eighth of a mile to account for that tailwind and you can still maintain, you know, your preferred bank angle, uh, whatever that is, 20 degrees, uh, you know, medium bank angle, but you have to account for that tailwind. So there's another way to build situational awareness. You know, how's the wind going to affect me? Talk all through it before you go flying. And we should be teaching this at the solo level, the student pilot level. Hey, when you go out there today, how's every, you know, cause now you're training them how to absorb the information and you're not just training them to know the information. You're training them how to apply the information before they ever get out the door. And that, and I think that's a huge hurdle that we have to clear when we talk about crosswinds, wind correction and all that stuff uh, for landing and instrument approaches. Talk about it every time before you walk out the door. Pete, to add to that, I think, you know, that's where, you know, a lot of GA pilots, especially the rusty ones, or, you know, especially for those that, you know, might be doing BFRs or stuff like that. I think, you know, that's where people find themselves in, in the pickle, right? When they're turning that base to final turn, and now you're in a situation that you could have avoided by knowing what the winds were doing, being situational aware of what was going on to avoid being in that situation. Uh, and, you know, I think most of those, uh, you know, accidents that we see, unfortunately, that happen occur because of that, because uh, of the poor planning, right? Uh, the poor not, the poor decision making back to the PIC authority of 
okay, I know the winds have strong winds on that one, you know, or or whatever they're coming from. Just being able to analyze where those are coming from to then adjust your traffic pattern. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if uh, if there's no questions, obviously feel free to rewind on anything that we talked about. Um, I'm gonna um, skip real quick to endorsements um, because as an as an examiner, I have a a pretty high expectation on endorsements. And then we're going to jump to your commercial private instrument uh, discussion, uh, specifically uh, something about the ACS. So let's talk about endorsements really quick. Um, endorsement, the FAA puts out an advisory circular, 6165, I think it's still on hotel, 6165. Yep. And it has exactly how the FAA would like you to write it. They give you a, a perfect ex example that if you use that endorsement as it is written, no examiner can turn that endorsement away. Right. And, and the last thing we want to do on a check ride is force the examiner into a decision. That's just, we used to call in the Air Force. We used to call we used to call it check ridesmanship. Don't don't put the um, yeah there he is right on the screen. Don't put the examiner in a position to have to make a decision about your the outcome of your exam. Right. So you if you're a CFI initial applicant endorsements is huge because if you're not getting those right, you're going to be putting people up for a exams where the administration is wrong, which could lead to a certificate revocation if there's something that metastasizes out of that. So just follow 6165 Hotel, follow exactly as it's written. We're in the age of technology. You can cut and paste that into a Word document. You can take that Word document, print it, uh, edit it, print it to a sticker and put that sticker in the back of the book. And you just saved uh, five minutes uh, about on a on the beginning of an exam or getting ready for an exam in the pre-brief over is the is the is the endorsement acceptable or not? Uh, we all know that advisory circulars are advisory in nature, but if you go into the ACS, the ACS very specifically says for the exam that the applicant is going to demonstrate adherence to all guidance so for the exam the the advisory circulars almost become black and white and if you're not following what's in the advisory circular you're now leaving a door open for a potential disapproval um because you're not following the guidance that's being it's being directed by the acs that you follow all guidance not just not just the FARs, but also the advisory guidance that the FAA puts out. So we 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 got to be real careful there um, that we understand what the the expectations of the exam. So when it comes to endorsements, just follow sixty one sixty five H, whatever the current uh, series is, and just cut and paste that stuff right into the back of the law book. Oh, and that's another thing. Oh boy, if you read the FARs. It says it is a log book endorsement. 
it also says uh, training record. It could be a logbook endorsement or a training record endorsement. When you go to a check ride, when your applicants come to a check ride, you're normally bringing your logbook. Not very many people bring their training record. So make sure that the endorsement is either stickered or inked in the pages of the logbook. Um, I do see some folks, I don't know how this kind of got out there, but uh, folks will show up and they'll have a digital logbook on their, their electronic device, their iDevice, their smart device. And then they have a sheet, eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper going, here's my endorsements. Well, what do I do with that? It's not in the logbook, right? So I'll give you a couple of, of hints. Um, if that's the way you get your endorsements, you know, um, they have to be put into the logbook. You can staple them, sticker them, tape them, but they got to be in the logbook. They got to be a, almost a permanent part of the logbook, right? If it is an I, a, a smart device and you're given an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper, lay that sheet of paper out on the desk, take a picture of it, and then load that picture up into your electronic logbook on the flight in which your instructor endorsed you on. Because you can actually load pictures uh, into most of those digital logbooks. And I think it's for that reason. But, the, but, but that still leaves a little question um, because depending on how the examiner looks at it, the, the best and 100% correct way, ink in the logbook on the page written per 6165 hotel uh, or go into that electronic logbook, they usually have a endorsement area and you can either you know pick the endorsement and then edit it or just type it in straight from 60 or cut and paste it in and put it in there and then put your digital signature on it. So don't leave don't leave the door open for your examiner to have to make a a judgment call, right? Let's let's keep it um, subjective over objective, right? It, it's it's, hey, I'm meeting the intent of the ACS all the way through. So that's very objective. You meet the ACS, then there's no question. If you get subjective about it and go, well, that kind of made it. And now I got to make a judgment call and I got to pull in all these other things, right? You can see how that becomes a very, um, a very, a big rabbit hole and, and it can lead to a negative outcome. So we, we want to be objective on the test. We want the test to be uh, as clear cut as possible that you are 100% meeting the intent of the airman certification standards. I, I hope, I hope I got that across correctly. Any, any questions on that? No. Okay. Um, so now let's go back to the, the commercial private instrument um, discussion. And, and uh, I just want to, hit something on, and it kind of follows on the endorsements discussion with the airman certification standards. So we're sitting here and you got a guy named Pete in Memphis. He's a flight instructor and he's an examiner and he, and he's putting forth, I, I can see that we're being recorded all this information out and recording, and it's going to be, you know, disseminated uh, somehow. The one thing I want to encourage everybody 
who's watching or listening to this in a healthy, positive manner, just because somebody says something, whether they're a DPE or a senior flight instructor or chief pilot, they have to be able to back that up with a source document reference from the FAA. Just because a DPE says something doesn't mean it's gospel. We'd all like to think it is. We'd all like to think it's 100% correct. And I can take that guy's word at it or that girl's word at it. And I can run, you know, and, and teach this to everybody. But remember, if we, if you can't go back and find the source document reference that says, okay, this is what the FAA says in support of that opinion or in support of that uh, discussion technique, there's really no way for you to teach that to a student or a learner because you want that learner to be able to go to that reference in the future and pull it up and, and go, yeah, here's the reference and here's what I was taught and it all works. Um, and I'll give you a, a for instance. Um, if I were to say right off the bat, you know, how do you handle basically big picture? How do you handle a loss comm procedure? Everybody is going to say AVF and MEA. Mm -hmm. but, but how many of us are going to say ETA, AVF, MEA, ETA? 100% of us are going to say AVF, MEA. A lesser percentage is going to add ETA into that formula or into that big picture formula. And it's because we constantly teach AVF, MEA, AVF, MEA, go online, look up your, your gouge, look up your study, um, your study aids, whatever your favorite aviation study aid is, they all say AVF, MEA. But when you go into the FAR and the source document and you go into the AIM, the source document, it talks about the, what you do and how everyone knows how to get to their destination. But now that you got to your destination, now what do you do? How do you descend out of your altitude safely and correctly? And how does that intertwine with your ETA? Oh, by the way, if you read the AIM, it also talks about how to establish communications through a flight service station using the VOR frequency and a R frequency uh, on the low chart to talk to a flight service station if you have a partial um, communications failure where you can still transmit, but you can't receive. So you can transmit to the flight service station using the R frequency, dial up the VOR, hit the ident button or voice button and listen to the flight service station over the VOR. So now you have communications, they can pick up a phone, they can call centers, they can call airports, right? And they can coordinate somewhat for you during that situation. So how many of us have gone truly top to bottom in the FAR and truly top to bottom in the AIM and what that guidance is? Again, there's lots of techniques out there, but do they capture the complete source document reference? Right. I, I guarantee you that there's probably some things I left out uh, that are, you know, additional things in this discussion. But that's just 
an example of don't just because you have a study guide doesn't mean the study guide's right. Um, and I'm not trying to undercut authority or not trying to throw anybody under the bus, but a true professional will always have some kind of source document reference for how they arrived at their position or their technique or their opinion. And, and I would encourage you to look at everything in that light and go, okay, this is what my study guide says, but I'm actually going to go up and look at it and, and be careful that you don't bias yourself and look for the answer that you're looking for that you want to see, but you're actually going line by line and going, okay, it talks about, you know, uh, assigned vectored expected file that talks about minimum root expected assigned. And then you read that third paragraph and go, Oh, wait a minute. This is talking about expect your expected arrival time and how to shoot the approach and when to shoot the approach. And, you know, do I file to the airport or do I file to an instrument or uh, initial approach fix? Right. So there's a whole nother paragraph there that kind of gets left out. So I, I hope that helps when you talk about the source documents and, and how much faith you put into something that someone teaches when it comes to, you know, because the exams come out of the ACS um, and the ACS basically have five documents, five fundamental documents that you have to reference, which is the POH, FAR AIM, PHAC, Airplane Flying Handbook, and um, the, the ACS itself, because that's the, that's the accountability document. And then if it's an instrument ACS, you replace the Airplane Flying Handbook and the Pilot's Handbook of Aeronautical Knowledge with the uh, Instrument Flying Handbook and the Instrument Procedures Manual. I think I got those names right. Um, and that's, that's the five documents that support the ACS that examiners should be pulling their exams out of. If that, if that all makes sense, those are the kind of the five big documents. You got all the advisory circulars um, and there's multiple other documents that are in there, but those are the five big ones. And, and read them, read that ACS cover to cover. Don't just go in there and go, what's the plus or minus on the heading and the plus or minus on the altitude and the plus or minus on the airspeed. If you don't read it cover to cover, you'll never fully understand the expectations of the exam. And then we go back to that first discussion point we had the first hour with your student. The first hour of with your student and go, look, if you want to become a private pilot, you have to take this exam. Here's the exam. Here's the exam demand. This is the standards that you have to, you know, uh, perform to take this home, read it cover to cover and do that multiple times throughout that training. So the student is understanding how to how they're going to be examined it's also an accountability document between you and the student because the student now knows what you have to teach and this the student knows what they have to learn and then you couple that with the part 61 guidance for what a private pilot needs to know with aeronautical knowledge aeronautical experience or the part 141 tco and now you have the complete picture for the training environment and the training requirements Any questions over there, guys?
Yeah, that's that's very well said, Pete. I, I agree with that. You know, yeah, I can remember, you know, back uh, instruments since we we're talking about that. You know, like all right, yeah, you know, like Pilot's Cafe is pretty good, has a lot of resource to it, but it's like really understanding the FAR, really understanding where that material is coming from is really necessary because then, you know, when you go get evaluated by you know a DPE or you know you are helping somebody else study you know um, for for their exam or just helping them understand what's what's uh, required or stuff like that and being able to show them where it's coming from from an FA source and not just you know making stuff up that's not even an FA source that's where I feel like people get in a pickle. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, I just wanted to, I know we're, we still got about 27 minutes left here. Uh, I just put an uh, email address in the comments section. It's vaporglobalaviation at gmail.com. If anybody has any questions, uh, if anybody has any feedback, if anybody has any concerns about uh, anything that was shared here today, uh, please feel free to provide that feedback to me at that email address. Uh, I take it very seriously. Um, you know, if somebody you know, over the course of two hours, I'm not perfect. Uh, if I said something wrong or if I said something confusing, uh, please send me a note at that email address. Uh, I will take that. I will research your concern or your question or your feedback and make sure that in the future I correct or make better what I said. And then I'll also get back to you uh, with the proper information. Yeah, guys. And if uh, you haven't already, Pete, I, I, listen, I listen to your podcasts. Uh, for those of you that have iPhone, I don't know if it's anywhere else, but the he puts out really good uh, podcasts out there that I listen to every now and then. Um, it's, I think it's under Vapor Global, correct? Or something like that for the podcast. Yeah, yeah, thanks for bringing that up. It's called uh, The Way I Taught It, and it is um, on most podcast platforms. Uh, it's on Apple, and it's on Spotify, and I'm going to drop a link to that into um, into the comment section. So, yeah, so, this, so the, the podcast uh, is basically my attempt uh the production quality isn't great it's truly grassroots you know i do have my my podcast microphone here that everybody has to have if they're going to call themselves a podcaster um yeah and it all what i'm trying to do is give back to the community that's given so much to me so i'll pick a topic or i'll see a trend item on an exam or i'll hear some flight instructors talking at the airport and they're having a really spirited discussion about something and I'll take that, I'll do the research. And what I try and do is I try and present all the FAA source document information for that, um, uh, for that topic, right? I try and dig out all the source document information for that. I present it to you. I will provide some opinion, some technique, uh, try and provide some application. I do it as a flight instructor. Uh, I don't do it as a DPE, uh, trying to be a sky cop or a sky sheriff or anything like that. I'm just saying, you know, here's what the FAA says, and here's what I do as a flight instructor. I try and keep it to about 20 minutes so that you can listen to it in your car uh, while you're driving to and from the airport. 
Um, I do have a couple in there that I'm kind of, uh, I'm starting to do some interviews uh, with folks and trying to get those. And those go a little bit longer. They get, those go about an hour, 45 minutes or an hour. Uh, but I'm really trying just to do some quick hit 15, 20 minute topics. Uh, we, uh, I think if I remember right, the, uh, the, the motto we use is next level aviation knowledge in microbursts, right? So really quick, uh, dense material uh, for just to, just to keep the discussion going uh, amongst flight instructors and, and learners and, and uh, at least point you in the direction, the intent is to point you in the direction of valid FAA source documents. And if you have a if you have a topic that I haven't covered uh, on on there, uh, when you listen through, um, shoot me an email and say, hey, this is a topic that we're talking about at our flight school. We really we're really having spirited discussions about it, and uh, I will do my best to provide a, uh, a non biased look at the source documents. I think you have one up there for uh, multi-engine departure considerations. I'd encourage anybody who flies the multi regularly, or even sometimes, it's it's a good listen. It um, it was kind of an eye opener for me because there's just things that you discuss that like I just had never considered. Um, so yeah, that's a, if you're gonna listen to one, that's got to be the one. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate you saying that, and 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 so so this is this is the perfect example, right? We have, I'm, I'm making an assumption here because I can't see you and, 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 I, and I don't know who it was, but I'll make an assumption that I'm probably more experienced than you are, right? And, and I don't say that in, in any, you know, I don't say that in any mean kind of way, but as a, I don't want to say elder statesman because I'm not, I'm, I'm close to 50, but I'm not there yet. Um, <laughs> well, Pete, you don't look fifty, so. <laughs> well, I, I, I try. I try. I try my best, right? It's all the stuff I get. So, um, but as someone who has been doing this thirty-something uh, uh, years, been a pilot for thirty-two years, private pilot certificate, you know, been doing it for thirty-two years, um, I have to. If if I didn't go to the college I went to, if I didn't go to the flight school and be a flight instructor that I went to, if I didn't go in the Air Force for 20 years, pop out, run a flight school, if I didn't have all those opportunities, I wouldn't be the pilot I am today. And there's a lot of people out there who are not going to follow that path and they may not have all those opportunities, but they should not be denied the experience gained from those opportunities. Now, when you go back to my multi-engine training, it was, you know, uh, max power, gear up, flaps up, you know, um, identify, verify, feather, uh, and and fly away from the ground. Right? Uh, it was that's what I learned. But over time, I learned okay, there's some big airplane flying principles that apply to small airplane flying. And so we weave those in now and yeah, as long as you get away from the ground, yeah, you're, you're good. And you come back around for an instrument approach or whatever, you know, back in the day, back in my day, this is how old I am. You know, you would have that, you have that engine failure and you would have to do a single engine partial panel ADF approach. Wow. 
<laughs> and and in the in the part of the country that I learned in, there was a coastline, and the ADF had something called coastline effect. That when you cross the coastline, the ADF needle could swing up to thirty degrees because of the radio frequency interference of the salt water versus the sand. Yeah, this is what we thought about back in the archaic days. So when you cross <laughs> when you cross the coastline, you know you knew that you may have to turn the airplane thirty degrees to the left because of this coastline effect, right? So crazy stuff, crazy stuff. How did we ever survive? Um, but you know. And that's what I'm trying to do. You know, again, I've been doing this long enough. I have, I think, gained a lot of knowledge because people forced it into my brain because I wouldn't listen and I was bullheaded and and I, I already knew everything. Right. 32 years old. I'm an Air Force pilot. I know everything. Right. I fly upside down. I fly formation. I fly through the clouds with somebody three feet off my wing. I know it. I know it all. Um, and then you have those moments where your situational awareness was lacking and then it, you get it back and you're like, well, I didn't know everything. And, and, and through those experiences, now, you, now the, the real reason for the podcast is it, it's my turn to build the next floor of the, of the, of the building of the structure so that the next generation of pilots are starting out ahead, you know, not behind. Um, so that's where that, that, that whole, multi-engine scenario um, was kind of the, the multi-engine podcast. It's probably the culmination of 30 years of flying multi-engine airplanes um, that it finally clicked in my brain. And I was asking myself a lot of questions and watching the news and watching Facebook feeds and stuff and going, why are all these uh, light to medium weight multi-engine airplanes. Why why are they crashing after takeoff? Why are they crashing after takeoff when they lose an engine? And I kind of just was digesting it, and I was like, I think I I think maybe I know. And they're trying to fly the airplane in a VFR traffic pattern with one engine as if it was performing with two engines, and so just fly straight out. And that's what we did in the C-17. That's what we did in the KC-10. That's what most airline or airline operations are going to do when you lose a motor. Fly straight out, fly straight ahead, keep that vertical component of lift straight up. And then once you're safe in the air, then figure out your options. Um, so, you know, it, it's just, it finally, the light bulb finally went off in my head. So I had to get on, I was excited. I had to go out and get on a podcast and go, hey, this, this is what I figured out um, and share it with the world. Yeah, you know, it's uh, you bring that up, and I, I just remember, you know, for being a first generation pilot in the family, first guy in aviation, I uh, I kind of took the weird approach to it and watched, you know, accident case studies and like what was happening. And you start to, at the very little knowledge I had back then, you know, before even getting my private, it's like some of those things could have been prevented. You know, but unfortunately, we as pilots can't make all the mistakes and we have to learn from other mistakes. And kind of like Pete said, you know, for him, it was why are these all like single or like twins crashing after they lose an engine? And then, boom, there you go. Uh, but, yeah, it's very, you know, it's it's sad. But at the same time, it's it's kind of 
unique to see like, okay, take the knowledge we have as professional pilots and kind of not necessarily, I guess, uh, just kind of like, you know, maybe assess what could have happened and maybe not really jump into conclusions yet. But if it's kind of something that's pretty straightforward that you, like, you know, for example, like Pete's uh, example there, I, I think, you know, that's a no brainer, right? Why turn into the downwind or sorry, into the crosswind when you can just fly straight out for a couple more miles or whatever it takes, depending on what you're flying, I guess, and then get to a safe altitude and then make that turn. Right. And, and, you know, and, and we don't want to, we don't want to ruin the podcast. Right. But we don't, but it's a yeah. good topic. Right. You know, the other thing that people don't think about, and, and it was a wow factor for me, I kind of intrinsically knew it, but I never plotted it on a, on a sectional chart, you know, a high hot day in Phoenix, Arizona, when it's a hundred degrees Fahrenheit and you're, I don't know what, you're 1500 feet elevation flying a Piper Seminole and you lose an engine um, right after, you know, in, in a position where you cannot just land straight ahead. It might take 20 miles of flying straight ahead to climb to a thousand feet AGL. Right. And that's a wow factor. That's physics. Like there's no denying that that's, that's physics. That's your climb rate. That's how long it's going to take. And it's a head scratcher and go, if it's going to take me 20 miles to fly straight ahead on a high, hot day to climb a traffic pattern altitude, what business do I have do banking anytime prior to that 20 miles? Because you're not going to be climbing. Right. Right. Um, so it, it just, it just, you know, you, you, that's, that's what happens, right? We, we're not blaming others, uh, for what happened to their flight. Because remember, every time we go fly, we are essentially, I'm, I'm, we, we use ADM and we use risk assessment and, and we use all these things to make flying safe. But every, the, we're betting our life on the last decision we made every time. And, and in aviation, people lose those bets. And, and that's the, the unforgiving environment in which we live. So we can't judge that person. We're not trying to judge that person, but man, if I can take their, their last decision and learn something from it without casting judgment on them, well, you know, then the, then we say they didn't die in vain, right? They, their, their, their accident or incident led to me being a better pilot. And that's, and that's a good way to, to look at it. Right. And I, and I think every pilot would want every other pilot to learn from their mistakes. Um, whether, whether the outcome was negligible or whether, they, whether it was the worst outcome. Um, I think that's a, that's an important thing that we should think about and go, yeah, if somebody learns from my mistakes, all for it, you know, um, mm -hmm. we don't make ourselves bigger by tearing other people down. Um, right. That's not how that works. So <clears throat> exactly. No matter, no matter how, how good it makes, no matter how much heat it gives the podcast and no, how, how awesome the podcast would be if we're going to cast judgment and, 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 and make people look horrible. Right. It, it, you don't you don't become bigger by tearing other people down. So you, you have to you have to moderate 
and be very careful that, hey, we're extracting the lessons learned, we're applying them to our flying, and it, those lessons came from an, an unfortunate event, no matter what the outcome of the event was, right? Yep. Guys online, anything you guys want to add or maybe ask here in the last couple of minutes? guys so um well if there's if there's no if there is a question just interrupt me um i just had one last note here on my on my page to to kind of talk to flight instructors about um i usually ask this question when i when i look to hire somebody uh, as a flight instructor i ask them when and i'm gonna get, i'm getting ready to do a podcast i actually have a sticky note to do a podcast on this um, and I'll kind of give you the spoiler alert here. When do you know someone is ready to solo? And this goes back to our discussion on situational awareness. And some folks who have shared have already kind of hit on this a little bit, but I just want to hammer the nail home on this. When is somebody ready to solo? It's probably the, the, the riskiest thing that we do as flight instructors for our career. And it's probably the riskiest thing that a student pilot does in their training is that initial solo. How do we know they're ready to solo? The bottom line is, you know that somebody is ready to solo when they can identify and correct their own mistakes. Mm -hmm. When they can identify and correct their own mistakes and they can safely land the airplane in the judgment of the flight instructor for the FARs, um, they're at a level of proficiency, they can do that. You know, that's when they're ready to solo. Um, I, I usually give an uh, example of, well, what happens if you're, okay, today's the day you're going to do your initial solo and you go out there and the student pilot comes around the traffic pattern and they're flying a, an unstable approach and okay, they go around and then they come back around again and uh, they're flying a stable approach, but then they get into the, the flare and it's kind of, you know, wonky and they go around and then they come back around and they come down final, it's stabilized, um, and it's a perfect landing. You know, are they ready to solo given that very minimal scenario? Um, I think there's a lot to say that they are probably ready to solo because they identified their problems, they took the appropriate actions, they maintained positive control of the airplane, they were safe, and when they did finally land, it was a good landing. It wasn't a bad landing. Mm -hmm. And one of the other things that we we constantly do, and this is kind of a uh, something that is pervasive, there's nothing that says you have to do three takeoffs and landings on your initial solo. Unless, of course, it's in your TCO guidance. And I don't think any TCOs really have that. All it says is that you need five or 10 hours of solo time and the three landings only come in when you talk about the class Delta airspace and the three solo landings at class Delta airspace. So when that student, that learner, that student pilot goes on their initial solo, don't put the onus on getting three full stop taxi bags. Put the onus on, I want you to do one takeoff and I want you to do one landing and I don't care how many go around you do in between. 
and when you when you decide to land and it's good and it's it's right and it's it's, it's going to be a safe landing go ahead and land and make it a full stop because it's the aeronautical experience is focusing on hours of solo not number of landings so um i just i'll just leave that for you um and when i get that podcast out it, it'll probably follow along those lines Yeah, you know, <clears throat> that's great, Pete. That's a, that's a great point that you brought up. And I think it kind of goes back to the conversation we were having is the PSC authority, right? Uh, I think, you know, I've, for the four months that I've been doing state checks here, it's, all right, cool. I'm looking, can they safely fly the aircraft primarily? And can they make the right aeronautical decisions? Whether, you know, I'm not going to get mad if somebody decides to go all around three times and on the fourth one they you know, decide to land. That just shows me that, again, what you're saying is <clears throat> showing me that they understand what's going on and they know it's not going to be a good landing because they're an unstable approach or they overshot final, you know, uh, and they decide to go around. There's nothing wrong with that. I'd rather see that 10 times more. And I'm sure you would too on a, on a hopefully by the check where you're not seeing this, but I'm sure you probably have instances where you do where it's a lot safer to go around than try and save the landing. And then now you're in a different pickle than you should have been. Right. Right. We want to practice positive skills, not negative skills. Yeah. So, and going around 10 times to correctly land the airplane once in a training environment is a positive skill. Mm -hmm. yep. So, because your identity, the student, the learner, the student pilot can identify that it's not right and they're not willing to accept it. And that's, and that's a huge, it's a huge learning point. So um, at this point, I'm going to uh, just say uh, thanks to everybody uh, for being here. Thanks for joining us on a Saturday morning. Um, I know there's a lot of other things you could do on a Saturday morning, uh, specifically sleep in. Um, I know some parts of the country have beautiful weather and you want to get out there and uh, fly today. Uh, but I appreciate all all the people who attended. Uh, thanks for listening uh, to some almost old guy, uh, mid career, <laughs> mid career guy. That's what I want to call myself, a mid career guy. Uh, still got a lot of career left. And uh, I hope you all learned something. And again, uh, I take very seriously everything that I present. Um, and if there's if there was anything incorrect or in, in, improper discussed or an opinion uh, that may, you may not agree with, Shoot me an email and uh, we'll get to the, the bottom line of what is correct. And we will make sure that uh, it is correct from here on out. Pete, thank you very much for your time, sir. I hope you have a great rest of your weekend. Thanks for, you know, uh, coming out or for being virtually with us and, uh, you know, having these discussion topics, uh, you know, help to do more events through fast eventually. So, you know, if you have time, I'd like to, you know, maybe do something with a bigger, wider perspective with more time. Um, I'll let you know uh, on those okay. if you're interested. Uh, but uh, for those of you online, thank you for uh, tuning in. Like you said, you know, you could be doing other things <laughs> for two hours and sitting here and listening. But I think, uh, you know, SCFIs, you know, just to kind of double back on that is we have a big role in the aviation industry and any anything we can do to better understand and educate ourselves as professionals to then pass on to our students or clients would benefit the industry.
All righty, Pete. Well, I'll let you get to your podcast or whatever you got going on today. Thank you, sir, for, for your time. No worries. Thank you. And uh, if I'm available in the future, you can count me in. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Thanks, Pete. That. Appreciate it. All right. We'll see you guys. Yep. See ya.